So day three, and I feel very filled up by this experience. And my sense is that many of you do too. You know, I really, I really do have this sense of um, how a retreat starts to cook, right? There's like a, uh, it just, things start to heat up a little bit. <laughs> More, a lot starts to happen for people in their experience in unexpected ways. And um, I just met with the, the 10 people who are on their first residential retreat. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily new meditators. It just means it's their first residential retreat. And it's really, really so inspiring to hear the, the depth of insight that arises, has arisen for these folks. And... Um, um, it's just really so gratifying. So very gratifying to know how this process actually works. That when we put ourselves in the conditions for the Dharma and the in, and insight to arise, it arises. <laughs> right? It's sort of um, what I was saying earlier about the technology of the of the practice. It's like when we set our direction, we, when we set our course in a certain direction, then our, our experience and our reality starts to take on that expression. And this is the, the direction that we're setting in here is one of wisdom and compassion, deepening self-understanding and insight, opening of the heart, um, looking at those different expressions of the heart, when the heart fills up, when the heart is open, and it's happening. It's just so, so gratifying, which is why I continue to uh, uh, engage in this uh, role as a, as a teacher because of, because of how inspiring and, and gratifying it continues to be. So, in other words, I'm very pleased. <laughs> I'm feeling pleased by the, by the uh, fruits of the Dharma that are showing, uh, showing itself here. And we will continue. We'll continue adding um, more ingredients in the soup. Um, and so, this evening, I'd like to talk about compassion. It's not evening yet, but almost. Um, Talk about the other expression of the heart, uh, karuna in Sanskrit, compassion. And I think as I speak, you'll understand why it was necessary to do the equanimity first. Right? I mean, usually it's the other way around, you know, the way that they're presented is the way I think that the, the dorms are metta, karuna, up, uh, mudita, upeka, usually. But when there's this, there seems to me to be a logic in it where we really do need to ground ourselves in a quality of acceptance about the way things are, really coming into connection with reality as it is before the heart can really open because otherwise we're going to be in relationship with a fabricated reality 
that comes through our own mind and our mind that is conditioned by what has come before, all of the past experiences. And if we are not able to have some way to differentiate between the past that comes through the mind, the memory, and this immediacy of this present moment, I'm not sure that we can fully connect and engage with what's really going on, which is, I think, how the heart truly opens, like what we call true compassion. Uh, The true heart's release, the true heart's response to the way things are. It's, It's natural. It's natural that when we come into connection and we see both the uh, uh, degree of pain and suffering and the degree of beauty and joy and uh, the, the, the exquisiteness of this reality, the heart naturally responds when we're present, when we're here. So... So this is really what we're exploring is this, this quality of here-ness, you know, to, to arrive here, to be here, to ground our experience here through the equanimity, through the acceptance, through the radical acceptance of confronting what is occurring right in the moment through the mind, the body, through our senses, our contact with the world, and then see what that response is. How are we moved how we moved in response to what we see and to what we know. And I think that's the true expression of, uh, of, uh, of, our, of our humanity when we're truly connected and we call open, when we're truly open, have our eyes open, our hearts open to the way things are. And this is what gives rise to compassion. You know, the significant, very significant aspect of the path that we are walking on, this path of wisdom and compassion. So, in some ways with the Brahma-Viharas, these four Brahma-Viharas, we can can might think of the loving-kindness kind of being the overarching uh, quality. And then the equanimity is the under- foundation, it's the foundational one, it kind of holds and grounds the others. And then in between is the compassion and the joy. And, and, the, and the compassion is, is an expression of that loving kindness, held in equanimity, grounded in equanimity. But it's an expression of the loving kindness in the face of the difficult, in the face of the suffering. Loving kindness is really just this wish for people to be well, for things to be well. You know, a friendship, it's a friendly kind of gesture of kindness. But the compassion is, is awakened when we are in contact with the pain and the sorrow, when the love, when the love comes in contact with that. And then there is a kind of, um, there's a felt sense, there's an energetic uh, a, a movement in the heart it's kind of, it can be felt like a quivering kind of a quivering in the heart or it's very tender you know, the heart the heart and it's really the area around the physical heart this this area we can feel the sense because we you know we put our hands here and 
you know, we hold our heart and it's energetic and we can feel this kind of tenderness, a tenderness and sometimes a sorrow, kind of a sorrow in that when we meet, when we meet the, the pain, the painful element in this world. And as that, as we come into contact and the heart is quivering in that tenderness, we, we naturally want that suffering to be relieved, released. We, we want that to end. It's not, it's not some kind of ideal or expectation or, um, or um, thinking it's wrong or it shouldn't be that way. It's just, I want to see if there's a way I can find uh, to support that suffering to come to an end. It's, it's, it's part of the expression of the wisdom in our being, of who we are as, as human beings. And people were talking today about when there is disaster, and we've seen this, we've seen this in history, even in our lifetimes, how people come together, and the generosity and the kindness and the uh, engagement to help each other becomes exponentially that much stronger and, and bigger than when we're kind of sort of going through our ordinary lives and get involved in all of our activities and things. But when there is some kind of crisis, uh, whether it's in our immediate families or communities like it is now, it's just this activation of the heart. These qualities just, we're not, we, we move out of our self-interest. We move out of our uh, attachments and our and our uh, uh, self uh, 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 what we what we think we need for ourself, and we go and help others. It's a it's beautiful and it's beautiful to witness. I I I I wasn't um, in New York at nine eleven. I had some some friends who were, and it was people say that New York City never came together in the way it did after nine eleven. It's like it was one big community. You know, people really um, being with each other, supporting each other, taking care of each other. It's an interesting thing how something through that kind of disaster breaks through the self, the self uh, interest, and uh, the way we become so consumed about what's in it for me. Right? What am I going to get out of this? So this is the compassion. You know, it's a response to to what we come into contact with, and it's a it's a shift away from our self-centered desires and attachments, and our fixed ideas and beliefs about how things should be, and we respond. Anyway, that's the equanimity. It's the equanimity that sees the way it is and takes action to alleviate that pain and suffering. So, the, so the, the compassion is supported by the equanimity. But unless we have a kind of a sense of that ground, of that acceptance of this is how it is, we'll get into our um, uh, attachments and desires and our hopes and our fears and our defenses and our reactions, and the mind is clouded and unclear. And, and in a way, it is what reinforces the problem. It reinforces and strengthens the very problem that we're trying to unravel from. So it truly is only through the the uh, expression of these of the of the wisdom through the heart that starts to really make a clear difference in 
our lives and in this world because we're, we're moving from a place of clarity. I talk about it sometimes as a um, kind of a, a heart drop. This word came to me um, some time ago where, where I really saw that when I'm not so engaged in my mental activity and, and letting that drive my, uh, my, my actions, and I'm, I'm, my attention and my energy is set a little bit further down in my body, <laughs> that I'm actually moving from the heart, from the area of the heart. I can feel an energetic kind of um, uh, 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 forward energy that I can feel moving from the lower part of my body rather than this kind of mental energy which sometimes when we become sensitive to it we can almost feel like it has a weight, the mental thinking Thinking, 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 figuring out, analyzing, problem solving, fixing, worrying, uh, uh, planning, all that. And, and we can f- feel almost like we're, we're off balance, like we're being pulled, <laughs> pulled like, a, like if there was a ring, you know, in our forehead and we're get, being pulled ahead and off balance. It's like not even really being able to fully center or ground in ourselves. That's the quality of wanting to wanting to get away almost from where we are, what's happening, to try to fix it, change it, do something about it. And it's a restless, fearful, insecure energy that is generated through our thoughts, through our stories, our narratives, if we don't see it clearly. And so this practice, this practice of really coming back down into our body, grounding, you know, the walking meditation, feeling our feet on the ground, breathing, this, all this brings the attention more into circulation of our whole being, our whole body. So we're not so top-heavy. <laughs> Anybody f- aware of that <laughs> sometimes? <laughs> You're a little top heavy, and, you, and it actually feels like we're we're not really very centered, or maybe sometimes not even on the ground. Right? We can sort of take off. <laughs> You're not even uh, um, just toppling forward. We begin to fly, you know, into our imaginary worlds, our imaginary universes. So this heart drop—it's like a dropping into the heart, and it and it corresponds with the with the word in um, Buddhism of citta, citta, which is the word for mind, but it also is the word for heart when we when we release the mind and open more to our essential, more the essential qualities of our being. So it's the citta, heart mind. Heart mind. So it's not like we're chopping off the mind or we're not using the mind. It's just the mind is no longer the one who's in charge. It's there's a, we start to access a different energy that we move from that is perhaps more um, quiet, uh, more intuitive, more open, connected, <laughs> uh, and more centered. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's also, this has also been called um, a heart perception. Like we start perceiving through the heart. It's like the, the lens, rather than having the lens 
uh, that we are seeing through be the lens of the ego mind of self, self-interest, what, what I want and what, what's in it for me, which is all around the egoic uh, dualistic perception. When we start to drop, it becomes a heart perception or which corresponds to the dharma. Well, we see things the way they are. We're attuned. We're in tune with the way things are or heart cognition, right? Understanding through the heart. It's a whole different way of being, you know, which, which this practice supports because we're getting quieter. We start to get quieter. We're not so reliant on our thoughts and the way and our beliefs and our ideas and what we think should be happening or either in our own experience or in other people's experiences, or in the world. So it awakens this awakens a deeper kind of knowing, a, a, a wise knowing, which we could call heartfulness. You know, we call this mindfulness. <laughs> but I really wonder whether we could start to play with that a little bit, because it's mind that drops into the heart. So heartfulness... We're practicing heartfulness. We could even say bodyfulness, right? We're practicing bodyfulness, starting to come more fully into an embodied experience, an embodied awareness. So heart and body, which is, you know, not uh, something that many people start to explore. It's so much the mind, particularly in our culture. So, so mental, so cognitive, so intellectual, you know. So, so I think, I think, you know, this is a whole shift in a way of being, which I feel is more feminine. There's something that feels kind of feminine, kind of finely after you know, thousands of years, you're bringing in the feminine (laughs) qualities to blend with the masculine. So those masculine qualities aren't the ones that are taking over, taking charge. So this beautiful blend, this beautiful mix of the masculine and the feminine energies, one that is responsive to the way things are. When we drop into the heart, we start to feel the softer side of things. It's like rather than those rough edges, you know, those hard edges, how life can just feel so rough and hard sometimes. When we start to drop and kind of relax in and open the heart, it, we start to feel the softer part. I mean, you have that ex- I know that th- you may have had this kind of experience where you know the shoulders drop and the chest opens up a little bit and, and even through the perception things start to look a little softer like putting on a, a particular kind of lens on a camera right where everything what's that kind of lens there's probably a name for it where it softens everything <laughs> You know, those, those photographers that are in here know about that kind of lens. It's a softness, and it's also, you know, also a little bit more moist. It's like moisture. It's like it's, things aren't so dry or mechanical or rational, analytical, you know. It's like it's a little bit, you know, juicier, more moist, you know. It's like, like the, the heart practices are the, the moisture for our experience, 
know, otherwise if it's just, you know, uh, intellectual understanding and kind of getting all our ducks in a row and understanding this and that and, and then being able to talk about it and articulate it, it can be a bit dry. And even in our practice, um, in the Buddhism, for a while there was a way we were practicing which was called dry insight, you know, we would, we would have insight into things, but yeah, we'd see the impermanence, we'd see the you know, emptiness, we'd see the dukkha, but it, we weren't really moved by it. It's like, it, it wasn't moving us in our lives. You know, yeah, I can see that, empty, you know, transient, you know. And um, you know, it isn't really fully touching our humanity and how that was going to make a difference in the world, you know, to, to save, uh, to save uh, all beings from their, their, their pain and suffering. So, so there's been a shift. There's been a real shift, and it, it is happening in our Buddhist tradition as well, in the West, in the West now. And the way that we're practicing, we're really bringing in so many more of the, of the heart practices and, and how these practices really make a difference in how, and not only in our own experience, but how we can start to be more engaged and more active in, in our lives and in the world in starting to wake up and, and participate more fully in uh, the conditions that are unfolding and how we got where we are and see if we can start to support that uh, moving in a different direction so we don't kind of drop off the cliff. <laughs> we don't just sort of uh, like end the world <laughs> anytime soon. You know, perhaps there's another way. There's um, this uh, Korean teacher, Myung Sung Sunim, woman, uh, abbess uh, of, a, of a monastery of many, many nuns. And I found a little piece of her teaching um, where she was talking about the Korean word for compassion, which is jabi. And when you break it down, ja is love. And B means to commiserate or to be sad with. Jabi. And the, and, they, and the compound, when they compound the word together, jabi, it means great compassion. Right? To be sad with, the love that is sad with. Right? Some of these other languages and cultures seem to understand much more uh, of, of the heart and the heart practices. She says that, when she speaks of this, of this sadness or this tenderness that I was speaking of, she says that great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means that when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we also cry. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, we are happy with them. Being sad together, being happy together, this is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people from their suffering. So essential. Such an essential expression of what it is that we're awakening to. 
So this true compassion that is always grounded in equanimity, which is the wisdom element. You see, the equanimity is the one, the lens that, that lets us see the way things are. And what equanimity in compassion sees, it sees that no matter how much I might wish for the suffering to end, it will always be an intrinsic part of our existence. Right? Even though my compassion just pours out because I want to alleviate that suffering, the wisdom knows that it's always going to be there on some level, in some way, which, which points directly to the first noble truth of the Buddha, that there is suffering in this world. Birth, aging, sickness, death. You know, and it's always going to be an intrinsic part of our existence. So it's, a, it's almost like a paradox for us. You know, we have to hold both. We have to both hold the, the heart's um, uh, beautiful uh, movement towards the alleviation of that suffering and wanting it to end, and at the same time knowing that it's not going to end. It's always going to be there. I mean, isn't that, that's a conundrum. Right? That's what makes this so difficult for us. If we stay in the ego, dualistic perception that says it has to be either or, it can't hold a paradox. Right? So the only way we can begin to hold these contradictions and these paradoxes is to go to the heart. The heart can hold it. It knows. It ha- it's the wisdom. It understands that it's, a, it's both the, our humanity, because we are in a human body, we live in relationship, we live in a world, and so we're naturally moved and naturally touched to respond to each other, to support each other, to help each other. At the same time, the wisdom knows it may not work. <laughs> Maybe this time, you know, there'll be some alleviation, but where's the next fire? Where's the next earthquake? Where's the next hurricane? The next death? The next loss? Right around the corner, right? Wisdom is aware of that. And it might be my own death, right? Wisdom knows that. So we feel into this truth. This is the, this is the Dharma, we feel into this truth, we start to reflect deeply on these truths, and then we see that we are all alike. <laughs> we, we can begin to feel our solidarity in our humanity, that no one escapes. No one escapes. We're in this together, <laughs> right? We're in this together. All beings face potential suffering and loss. We're all alike. No matter what the outer appearance looks like. And I got so tricked up by this. I I remember, you know, certainly in, in the beginning of my practice, I really did believe that some people were exempt. I just thought they, they just, they have the best life They've got it all together. They've got every, you know, all the, all the uh, ducks are lined up <laughs> for them. <laughs> but not me, right? It was always, it was out there. 
And then there was that kind of carrot that our culture puts out for us, you know, this carrot that you can do it too, you can get everything that you want, you can have all these things, and you can, you can be just like me. <laughs> and it's just a facade. It's just a facade. I mean, it's like the um, Wizard of Oz, right? The little guy behind the big screen, you know, who's really there? Or the emperor that has no clothes, you know, it's not real. I, I always imagined that other people had these great lives. And um, I remember the first time I went on retreat, you know, a couple of times when I started doing the, the bigger group retreats and um, sitting in the small groups, you know, and hearing other people's experiences. And I remember being so surprised that other people were having a hard time. <laughs> You know, I mean, even on retreat, it can seem like everybody's just kind of cruising around, you know, walking and sitting, and, you know, you don't really know what's going on behind the, behind the facade, right? And then go in and listen to what's really going on for people, and it, it was astounding to me. And it was, it was a huge revelation to realize that other people were also having difficulty. I just lived in this kind of imaginary world. I, a lot of it came, you know, from my upbringing, just reading, you know, magazines and, you know, books and, you know, all that projection of celebrity and success and, you know, all this, you know, the, in the 50s and, you know, mostly in the 50s where there was that, you know, big illusion that you could have everything you, you wanted if if you were in a privileged position. And um, it was such a, it's just a, it was made up. There wasn't anything behind it. it. There was no substance. And we're seeing that now. I mean, a lot, you know, through social media, we find out that a lot of these, um, these uh, uh, scaffoldings that were built up are just collapsing. You know, the systems are just breaking down that uh, particularly in certain people's lives, you know, that things get exposed now in ways they never got exposed before. You know, so, so much is happening for women, you know, particularly around um, uh, sexual abuse that was always so hidden and so pushed down. And it's just coming up, it's raging up. It's not going to be hidden anymore. It's just a facade, just a, a power play, you know, privilege, male privilege. So, so we're really, you know, these, these, these facades, these things that have been built up, we're starting to see through them more and more and more. We, we, they don't have the same kind of glitter that they used to have. This is, the, this is the, the wisdom, the equanimity that starts to see through, and then the heart that gets moved, the heart that gets touched, the compassion that wants to begin to alleviate that. So rather than feeling so isolated in our pain and starting to feel more this solidarity that we're in this together, we can now become witnesses for each other. It's like we bear witness. It's a, it's a very different kind of stance where we join together and bear witness. Not trying to fix, not trying to trying to bring something to an end because we know that there's going to be more and more proliferation of this kind of thing in, in, uh, in, uh, the, from the ignorance 
that happens, greed, hatred, and ignorance that happens in this world. But we bear witness through our stance of sitting in stillness, awake, connected, conscious, joining together in our solidarity. There's wisdom that knows that we can't really control the way things are unfolding. But I can open to a natural receptivity to the way things are. And that sense of separation between self and other, me and you, it starts to melt away. It starts to become less solid. Which is actually a good feeling. It's a pleasant feeling. There's a, it's, it's hard to talk about the joy in the experience because we're talking about meeting something that's painful. But as we start to dissolve our sense of separation and isolation, that it, it awakens us in a way that feels good. It, it's, a, it's a joyful feeling because we're coming back into connection with the truth of who we are. When we recognize our essential nature, sometimes called the Buddha nature or true nature, when we recognize that, that's joyful. <laughs> it's blissful. Pleasurable. People have mentioned that, you know, when I I check in with you and I say, well, you talk about some release or something that's opening and how does that feel? It feels wonderful, right? (laughs) This is what I love. This This is what I want. This is how I want to feel. I feel the freedom. I feel the openness. It's wonderful, right? So we come into that, um, knowing of our essential nature. Cynthia Bourgeau, one of the uh, Christian mystics, into this Christian mysticism at the moment a little bit, working with Cynthia Bourgeau in the Living School, which is called the the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Cynthia's on the faculty there, and, um, and she says, um, when we talk about this kind of connection, she says, step up and say, I am willing to hold a piece of this suffering with my own life, with my own pain, when there is a sense we are not alone, that we are companioned in our pain, it's easier. Right? We can hold a piece of that suffering in our own life, in our own pain, when we sense that we are not alone, we are companioned in our pain. We're in this together. It's easier. And you can get a sense of how we're releasing some of the stress we're by, by this by this. Uh, perspective, by, by beginning to look in a different way, we're relieving the stress of the pain that we feel. Right? It's, a, it's again paradoxical. You know, by entering into more of the painful situ- element of life, we actually begin to relieve it. 
in our own experience because the heart opens and the wisdom starts to express itself and there's a, there's a release into more ease and well-being. It's, a, it's such an interesting contradiction. Uh, Joanna Macy, one of our elders in the tradition, she calls it a tantric flip. <laughs> By entering into pain, we awaken, (laughs) right? By turning towards, and it's not just the pain, but it's turning towards life as it is, reality as it is, we awaken, right? It's so counterintuitive because we feel pain and we resist, right? Or we go into fear, a fear reaction. You could see it when there's pain in the body, right? It's like, ah, you know, we just want to contract and push it away and then perhaps get fearful and start to imagine, you know, this is the beginning of the, of the end, you know, and we're certainly going to die very soon if this continues, you know. And, and, and so there's just this, all this bundle of, t- of tightness and contraction. But if we don't understand, you know, if we don't know what we're doing, we're not going to be able to be relieved of that. So we have our practices where we recognize what's going on, unpleasant contact, resistance, tightening, contraction, and then see if we can loosen it, soften, relax. Ah, Breathe out. (laughs) Notice if there's a fear response, how that's getting the belly all tight. Breathe out. Open. Loosen. Soften, which then brings us back to more balance, more ease. Right? But unless we know that, we can stay f- so long in the fear. Uh, the imagine fear is fear is always a thought about the future. Something very interesting to reflect on. Fear is always about what we imagine is going to happen in the future. It's a future thought. It's not, it is, it's based on the past, but it's the mind moving into the future and imagining, right? Imagining all these different kind of scenarios and then getting frightened. One of my favorite stories is a, a, about um, a story of a cave, of a caveman who would go into this cave and he was a beautiful artist and he would paint these incredible um, paintings of, of, of uh, lions on, on the cave walls. And then one day he walked in, you know, he's very far along on his, uh, on his paintings and he walks in and he sees his painting and goes, oh my God, a lion! And he runs out. <laughs> Because all of a sudden it was so real. <laughs> and I love that story so much because it's what we're doing when we get frightened by our own thoughts. We're the ones who, who created them. <laughs> and then we freak out. <laughs> right? We run the other way. It, it, it's, it's so, but it's just like paintings on a wall. It, it's, that's all they are. They're, they're not real. Right? 
And we can begin to see this with our, our, our uh, own awareness mind. We can see, oh yeah, there's a thought or a story and, and I'm getting freaked out by it. <laughs> you know, and start to feel what happens in the body, the body response, and you say, wow, that's not even real. It's not even there right now. How many people have already said, like, you know, right now, you know, my husband isn't here, or right now I'm not at work, or right now this isn't happening. I'm just here and I'm okay. You know, I'm just okay. So it's like pulling the veil back, you know, the veil back, the veil that the mind creates, right? And then this whole kind of, uh, we see through the veil and everything's rather distorted. (laughs) We can't see very clearly at all because we've got a veil, right? And so oftentimes in the spiritual uh, traditions it's talked about pulling the veil back. It's the veil of ignorance. You know, the veil of confusion. The veil of delusion. Because we're not seeing clearly. We see through our own mental uh, filters. And then we see things in a very distorted way. But that, then we start, you know, engaging in our life as if all that's true in our relationships, in our work, in our relationship to ourself. And, and then we come to our meditation practice and we start seeing through it a little bit. And we go, wow, it's not like that at all. You know, I've just been making all of this up. We call that waking up, <laughs> right? We wake up. <laughs> apparently... Um, uh, I've just been hearing for the, the, the younger generation now, uh, even young, like teenagers, uh, they have this word that they're, they're fond of, which is called woke. Uh, it's so cool. I just think it's so cool when they, they, they see, they, they, when they talk about their friends, they go, that person's woke. <laughs> like, like they're really with it, you know. They, can, they see things the way they really are, you know. They're woke. <laughs> I just love that. You know, that's seeing with a whole different a whole different lens. You know. It's <laughs> great. You know, there's waking up, we're waking up, we're seeing through the way we generate this crazy reality, right? Look at this world. This world out. This is what we're seeing. We're living in it. Right? But we're not separate from it because we're doing it too. We're participating until we wake up. Until we really wake up and see, we continue to participate in that fantasy world. Right? So, what is it? What would it be like to live more closely to the truth? We call the truth meaning the truth of this moment, not like there's a truth, you know, that we're supposed to kind of get to or understand, you know, this absolute truth. No, it's just this moment. What's true about this moment? What's true in my mind? What's true in my body? What's true in my feelings? What's true in this relationship and this situation? What's really true? And it's such a wonderful practice to begin to uncover the delusions, to uncover the, uh, the distortions. You know, 
and start to see under, see through. And all of you in this room have had that experience already on this retreat. You know, just pulling back the veil a little bit, seeing a little bit more clearly, seeing a little bit more deeply, being more interested, a little more interested. Hmm, wonder what that's about. What's going on there? You know, seeing things that we haven't really seen before. You know? And it's not like there's one veil. (laughs) It's not like we see the veil and then we pull it back and it's done, right? (laughs) It seems like, oh my gosh, there's another veil. (laughs) Pull that one back, but it seems like there's another one. Oh, and then I pull that one back. Oh, it happens to be another one. (laughs) And then it just seems to keep going like that. Which is what keeps the journey interesting, right? Otherwise, maybe it would get kind of boring or dull. But wow, keeps us on our toes, right? (laughs) Certainly keeps us on our toes. So partly what I'm really wanting to to communicate is for us to really open to the fullness of our experience. I think you've been hearing that, you know, through the through the teachings and uh, through the talks. You know, just to keep opening and allowing and welcoming and noticing the ways that we might push away or resist or get afraid. You know. And then see if we can kind of recognize that and let, let go a little bit more and, and trust that maybe it's okay to, to not just follow that, that, that imagination or that, that fear and, and just see what might happen. You know, just taking a couple of little steps into the unknown uh, to that which is unfamiliar to us. Maybe we're, what's familiar is kind of living in this... Um, Ah, uh, kind of—I want to call it ego cage. You know, it's kind of a way that we are where we're, we're in repetitive and habitual patterns. But then we just start to, you know, open the door a little bit and walk out and just see things a little bit differently by allowing uh, our, our feelings to come in. And maybe, maybe when I'm feeling this sorrow or I'm feeling this grief or this fear, maybe I don't have to be so, quite so frightened of it. But perhaps there's another way to be with myself, which is with a loving awareness, an awareness that can be present and connected with my fear or with my grief or with my sorrow, with my pain. And we begin to hold ourselves in a different way. We begin to hold ourselves with more compassion, this self-compassion, with this self-care, with this kindness. It's a, it's a whole way of being with ourself that starts to shift, which then starts to, um, to soften the fear. The one who is afraid isn't as afraid because it's held in love. It feels safer. It feels like the one who is afraid feels like she can begin to relax because There's love and holding and companionship. 
So there, we can almost start to feel that in our, in our bellies, you know, because we hold the fear. We hold a lot of fear in the belly. And as we start to relax a little more and soften, it's like the, the belly starts to open up even. Ah, that's where that, that out-breath, you know, that deep out-breath and then, you know, just this opening and softening in the body where we're not holding the fear in quite the same way. And we can make room for the way that we're touched by what's happening in the world and by what's happening uh, to our friends and our loved ones and our communities and in the world. In, in that now, now we really know about the world, you know, through social media and social... It's like the world has come into view. We know what's happening in just like every country if we want to, you know. And all the all the um, uh, pain and destruction and violence, like it's all there, you know. So, so as we start to uh, open to those, that, that information and that truth, it's like we can allow it a little bit more. We don't have to be afraid of the sorrow. We don't have to be afraid of the grief. It's natural. It's, 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 and I would say that the sorrow that we feel in relationship to what we see is even part of the heart. It's, a, it's not egoic. It's, it's not a, a something that we have to try to figure out how to stop feeling uh, so much sorrow or grief. But it's like, no, it's the heart. It's a heart quality. Because we're in contact. We're in touch. We're in relationship. We are awake. We are alive. We are participating. We're not cutting off, we're not isolating, we're not withdrawing, we're not pretending, we're not defending. We're saying, no, I am willing. I am willing to step up. I'm willing to hold a piece of this suffering with my own life, with my own pain. I'm not alone. So you can get a, as I'm speaking about it, perhaps you get a sense of that, kind of that moving in, you know, this leaning in is something that people are talking about more, this kind of leaning in. But leaning in with wisdom. Leaning in with understanding. Because we don't want to lean in if we're not ready to lean in. (laughs) We don't want to lean in if we're feeling pressure or forced or expected to or, you know, somehow that it isn't where we really are. Because we want to lean in with wisdom and support and, and a, a, a ballast under, under us. So it's okay to lean back. <laughs> it's okay to withdraw. It's okay to say, no, I'm not ready for this. I need a little more time. And this, is, this is the wisdom. So it doesn't, again, look any particular way. We don't just lean in and go forward, you know, with what we think is right and good. But we want to keep sensing and feeling and, and listening to what's right for us where we are in this moment. You know, maybe in the next hour it'll change or the next day it'll change, but right in this moment, this is where I am and this is how I want to respond to this. So that pressure, that inner pressure comes off of us to be one way or another or to look one way or another. 
saying so true, so true in connection with where we are. There's wisdom that says, like Ajahn Shah, the great Thai master. So one, one Westerner student asked why he had so many material things in his room. And he replied, you see this glass? To me, it is already broken. While it's still intact on the table, I use it. It even has beautiful colors when the sun shines on it and a lovely sound when I hit it with a spoon. But for me, it's already broken. That's the paradox, right? It has function, it has beauty, it has usefulness, and it's already broken. And when I understand that, that releases my attachment, that releases my self-interest, that releases that uh, grasping onto that I can only be happy if I have my glass. <laughs> right? So this shift in, this, in our attitude, the way that we are approaching things. I had the... Uh, privilege to buy a used car 10 years ago. And um, it was uh, already about mm, five years old, still looking beautiful, beautiful car. Looked pretty new, brand new. But uh, it, it had a dent in the side. A little hole, kind of like a somebody, you know, like somebody knocked a, um, a stick or something in the side. It had a little dent. And I said, yep, that's my car. <laughs> I want a car that looks really great but already has a dent. Because <laughs> then I don't have to worry about it getting broken. <laughs> right? You know, it's like the, um, the way of things. Uh, Leonard Cohen, you know, this wonderful... Uh, 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 stanza from his song, the uh, song anthem. Right. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. The third Zen patriarch in China from the 600 AD gave a teaching on the importance of being without anxiety about non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. And I think in some ways that sums it up. How somehow the the ego mind, the, the self, the self who's intact, who's, you know, in charge and wanting to control things, you know, wants things to be a particular way, which we can call a kind of perfection, according to that 
perspective. Again, as we start to open right, that anxiety that would come about something not being perfect and then starting to sense into that possibility of things not being so perfect, non-perfection. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. So we practice. This isn't necessarily an easy path. That's why I call it radical, radical acceptance. Radical acceptance of the way things are. So let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.